You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading this morning is from Romans 3, verse, and it's beginning in verses 1, excuse me, verses 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of God. Well, a poet from ancient Rome named Horace was a literary expert in his days, and he taught writers how to, you know, form good, compelling narratives, particularly comedies and tragedies that would grip the hearts of men and women. And one of the techniques that he would utilize was something called deus ex machina, which was the plot twists. It's when the main characters in the story are in a bind. There's no way forward. All hope is lost. The problem is so severe that no one can resolve it. No one can rise above. And then suddenly and unexpectedly, a heroic, godlike character is introduced. Or in the old plays, they would be lowered down into the stage, onto the stage, in order to rescue the day. But his advice to writers was this. He said, do not bring a God on the stage unless the problem is one that requires a God to solve it. That's sloppy writing, he's saying, essentially. And he's essentially asking, you've got to determine, is this a problem that, can sim- that simply cannot be solved without the help of divine intervention? Is this a problem that humanity or the characters on stage can rise up and achieve, or is this something totally outside of their grasp? And this is the question that the Apostle Paul has been asking for these last few chapters. Is the human problem of sin and brokenness and evil in this world one that can be resolved by the human characters on the stage of history? Can they gather the right resources and put forward the right people in order to solve the dilemma of being under God's judgment in a way that would make us right again with God? Or is this a problem that requires God to step down into his own story in order to fix it himself? And that's not just a theoretical question. That is a question that you've got to be asking for your own life and for the people around you today. Can I... Can we simply rise above on our own? Do we have what it takes? And the Apostle Paul has made this definitively clear. The answer is no. No, you can't. No, I can't. 
No, we cannot. Even with all the right instructions, even with God's law in hand, we cannot. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one is good enough. And what we discover is that this is what God has been saying all along. This isn't just a New Testament development. We find in the Old Testament, God says in Ezekiel 22, I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap, who would bridge the chasm between God and man on behalf of the land so that I would not destroy it, but I found no one. Actually, church is this way if you want to come back this direction. I found no one, God said. And that the idea here is that all have fallen short of the glory of God. No matter where you find yourself, whether you, your life is in the lowest pit, in the lowest cave below, or whether you're soaring on the heights, whether you're in the, the trenches below or on the peak of Everest in your life, each and every person is still incapable of bridging the gap between God and man. Each person is incapable of reaching the heavens. It doesn't matter, he's saying, what advantage you have in life. For the first century, it doesn't matter if you were born a Jew or a Gentile. For us today, it doesn't matter if you were raised in the church or not, or if you're rich or you're poor or you're a Republican or you're a Democrat. All are incapable of bridging the gap between God and man. The field has been leveled. And nothing less than the divine act of God's intervention can save us now. Now, there are unique moments like the one we're in right now where we look around and we realize that the things that we used to look to in order to hold us up and to elevate our lives and to give our lives worth and meaning have become weak, they failed us, or they've been stripped away entirely. Within our church, many of us, our health is volatile. Our relationships are strained. Our finances are uncertain. Our jobs are insecure. Politics is a mess. And so what in this world can you legitimately look to horizontally and say, you know what? That's what's going to save us now. That's what I'm going to believe in now. That's the hope that we have been looking for. Honestly, take a moment to consider what in your life can you look to on the horizontal plane and say, that is going to pull us through. And you see, for those who realize and are willing to honestly admit today that there really is nothing, it's those who are the ones that are prepared for what's next here in Romans. Malcolm Muggeridge once said that, for it's precisely when all, every earthly hope has been explored and found wanting, when every possibility of help from earthly sources has been sought and is not forthcoming, when everything that this world offers, whether moral or material, has been explored to no effect. And in the gathering darkness, every glimmer of light finally flickers out. It's then that Christ's hand reaches out sure and firm. It's here in verse 21 that all of the tension that has been building throughout Romans is finally relieved. This is the turning point of the story. And Paul begins with these two powerful words, but now. 
And what this shows us is that in the kingdom of God, the worst thing is never the last thing. When your problem that you're facing is overwhelming and you're hopeless and all bets are off and you're ready to give up, God gets the last word. God gets the last word. But now, or in other words, from now on, and what Paul is saying is what I'm about to tell you changes everything. This is the hinge upon which your life and all of human history now turns. Things will never be the same again. This isn't course correction. This isn't slight improvement. This is the inauguration of something entirely new that will transform your past, your present, and your future. And what we discover here is the very heart of this letter. The great divine act of salvation that God has brought about through his son, Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection. No one could rise above. But the good news is that God came down. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage under three headings. We're going to look at the provision, the price, and you've got a cheat in front of you. So if you don't know how to spell this next word, it's right in front of you in your Bible. The propitiation. The provision, the price, the propitiation. Let's look at the provision. The good news here is that what God requires of us God provides for us. What God requires of you, God provides for you. And when you only grasp half of that equation, you miss Christianity entirely. Many of you have a pretty good, thorough understanding of what God requires of you. In fact, you've been burdened by your entire religious experience. You know just enough about God and the Bible to make you absolutely miserable. You know enough about God to realize that your life is never going to add up. And so you're in this endless cycle of knowing what is required of you, trying, failing, feeling guilt, shame, and starting that process all over again. But now. But God sent his son to break that vicious cycle that is so crippling. And we see here in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested or it's appeared on the, the stage of human history apart from the law. What does that mean? It means it didn't appear by coming up through acts of human obedience. It's not coming from this direction, but it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. It's being made right with God. It's a, a healing of our whole existence that comes down from God through Jesus Christ. It's not something we offer to him. It's something that he offers to us. He goes on to say, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. So here's a question for you to consider today. What does God require from you? As we look at this passage, what is God requiring what must you and I contribute in order to be made whole and right with this holy, righteous God? And the answer is this, it's need. What you need is need. Grace means you have nothing to contribute and everything to gain. 
And what that is going to do is lift the spirits of those who realize that they're not very good Christians, and it's going to totally humiliate those of us who built up this persona of self-righteousness and pride. It levels. Grace means you have nothing to contribute and yet everything to gain. John the Baptist said this really thing about Je- really strange thing about Jesus. He said, "He must increase, and I must what? Decrease." And so this is the pattern for the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, less is more. And therefore, offering nothing to God is what actually opens us up to receiving everything from Him. Peter Kreft would put it this way: If we come to God with empty hands, He will fill them. But if we come with full hands, well, then he finds no place to put himself. Too many of us have come today with full hands. God, look at all the things that I've done for you. Look at all the ways that I've earned this. Look at all that I have done for you. You got me. And yet he finds no place to put himself in that situation. It's the broken person who says, I've got nothing to offer but sin, brokenness, and need. And God says, that's what I'm talking about. I can work with that. The moment you try to add to what Jesus has freely given, you've diminished its value completely. So here's a little bit of kingdom math. 99% God's grace plus 1% of us trying to earn it equals 100% rejection. Even an ounce of effort to try to earn God's grace is an outright rejection of it completely. It's all or nothing. Grace is a gift. It's given freely, which means that it's without cause. It's unmerited. It's not deserved. And the only way that we can receive this grace, we're told here, is by faith. What kind of response is God looking for in light of this grace that he offers? It's very simple. He's looking for trust. Trust is when we give up on ourselves and we go all in on Christ. Faith, as it's been said before, is a simple open-hearted attitude towards God which takes him at his word and gratefully accepts his gifts of grace. See, When we're given a gift, we feel obligated. Sometimes it's actually not rewarding to be given a gift on your birthday because then you're like, oh, we give gifts on birthdays now? Like now I gotta remember your birthday and you're gonna expect a gift back on your birthday. Or you buy me a coffee, I'm like, oh great, I need to like keep three three extra dollars in my wallet to make sure I buy you coffee next time. It's called the debtor's ethic. I gotta get you back. What does God want from us? Not our payback. We could never. It's silly to even think we could. So what does God require? Here it is. He wants our trust. What's he looking for? He's looking for trust. Now, small little tangent here, a little history lesson. This passage right here, this little portion of Romans, six, seven verses, whatever this is, that we're focusing on today is actually the heartbeat of the Protestant Reformation. And to say it bluntly, it's the reason we're here right now and not down at St. Mary's. This was the heartbeat of the Protestant Reformation that we are now in, continue to remain in the wake of, this growing 
trend of getting back to the pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. And the pillars of that Protestant Reformation are, are seen in this passage. And, and they used to speak in fancy terms in Latin. So the, the, the pillars were these. Sola gratia, which means by grace alone. Sola fide, which means by faith alone, or through faith alone. And sola de gloria, for God's glory alone. How are we saved? How are we accepted into God's family what makes us apart? Grace alone, faith alone, for God's glory alone. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. Now, while this mercy and this gift of life and acceptance is a free gift to us, it's also a very valuable one. It is free and it is costly, which leads us to our second point, the price. The price. Flannery O'Connor once said that there's something within us as storytellers and readers of stories that demand, she said, the redemptive act. So we see things crumbling and falling apart in stories or movies, and we're like waiting for that redemptive act where someone swoops in and saves the day. And she says that we do this rightly so. This is a good impulse to expect this. But she says what we have done, unfortunately, is that we've forgotten the cost of it. We demand the redemptive act, but we've forgotten the cost that's involved. And what Paul is saying and showing us here is we cannot forget the cost of our redemption. Verse 24 and 25. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, we'll come back to that word in a minute, by his blood to be received by faith. Redemption. What is Redemption. We, we use that word, but do we understand what this is? Redemption is the price of freedom. It's the payment that's made. It's like a ransom. And, and we actually still have connections here because you, you take a coupon or a gift card and you go and redeem it. It's the price. It's the exchange. And in the Old Testament Bible, it referred to a payment that was made in order to release a prisoner from death, from the sentence of death. The gift of our freedom is free. Hear me clearly. It comes to us freely. But the cost, and this is where things get really valuable. The cost was Jesus' blood. A theologian from the past named John Flavel uh, used his imagination, a little bit of creative license, to sort of recreate a conversation between God the Father and God the Son that went something like this. The father says, my son, here's a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in, in their eternal ruin. What shall be done of these souls? And the son says, oh, my father, such is my love for them and pity for them that instead of them perishing eternally, I will be responsible for them as their guarantee. Bring all your bills that I may see what they owe you. Lord, bring them all in, that there may be no after reckonings with them. At my hand, you will require it. I would rather choose to suffer your wrath than that they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me, 
be all their debt. And the father says, but my son, if you undertake for them, you must pay every last penny. Expect no discounts because if I spare them, I will not spare you. And the son said, I'm willing, father. Let it be so. Charge it all to me. I'm able to pay their debt. And although it will totally undo me, though it will impoverish me and empty me of all of my riches and treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. Friend, we live in a world where we are desperately seeking to validate our lives and to justify our existence. Where people are always looking for ways to give their life meaning. And on top of this, endless cycle, we also live in a world that's constantly trying to strip us of our value and diminish our worth and our dignity. And yet the good news of Jesus Christ rings true today as it ever has been. And it tells us and reminds us that your value, friend, your value is not based on your beauty or your figure or your intellect or your education or your success or your wealth or your relational status or on your children or even your religious performance. For the Christian, your value is based on the costliness of Jesus' sacrifice. And what that means is that your worth, my worth, has been forever attached to the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And when we truly believe this, when we truly believe this, when we truly believe the price that was paid in order to redeem us, then we will never, ever, ever have to question our value and worth again. It's been settled. Look to the cross. Look to the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? So we see the provision. We see the price. Lastly, we see the propitiation. For you note takers, P-R-O, P-I-T, I-A-T, I-O-N. Propitiation. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to define it right now, and then let's kind of flesh this out. Propitiation is the sacrifice of atonement through which sin is forgiven, God's anger is appeased, and the enmity that exists because of sin is replaced with intimacy. Forgiveness, anger appeased, enmity replaced with intimacy. Now remember, as we've seen here in Romans, this theme keeps coming up, that the human predicament that you and I deal with is not just simply sin. The problem that we cannot resolve on our own is God's wrath against sin. And Paul continues to make this clear. Now, religion in general is marked by this ongoing pattern of trying to please some sort of godlike character through acts of sacrifice. We see this in pagan Rituals and pagan religions throughout history. People constantly try to sacrifice in order to appease the gods, whether it's fruit or vegetables or animals or even human sacrifice. But we also, we have to admit, we see this in our own Bible, in the Old Testament. Some of you guys who've been reading through the Bible in a year through the Dwell app, you, you just recently went through Leviticus and you're like, man, that's a lot of animals being killed. 
And what the Bible tells us is that in the sacrificial system, animals were offered up morning and evening so that the sweet aroma of the sacrifice would reach God. And although this was prescribed by God, it was temporary at best. It could never satisfy God's just anger against ungodliness. It just simply temporarily deferred it. And I think that that's what Paul's getting at here. It says, in God's divine forbearance or in his patience, he passed over former sin. So these sacrifices didn't deal with the sin. They just kept pushing it back. Kicking the can up the street until a once and for all sacrifice came. Now, let's pause for a second. Because while the wrath of God and sacrifice and blood and all of this sounds, can we just admit this sounds like some archaic religious jargon from the past that has very little to do with our today? Blood, sacrifice, smoke from the altar. What the heck is that? Like, what good is that? But I want us to see this, this is actually extremely relevant. Because while I've never met a person who sacrifices animals to please a God, or at least I hope I haven't, um, I meet people all the time that are unknowingly trying to make propitiation in their life. For instance, I talk to people that think that God is always angry at them. I meet people all the time that thinks God is just constantly disappointed with them. And so what they do is they go throughout their week thinking that they've got to do something, some sort of ritual, something costly, something sacrificial in order to turn God's frown into a smile. That he's never quite happy with you. That he's never quite satisfied with your life. And so you got to keep appeasing him and keep appeasing him in order to distract him from his dis is his deep disappointment in your existence. To distract him from his deep regret that he ever made you. You know what's saddest about all this? Just like in the case of the first century Rome, that it's often among professing Christians that these feelings arise. It's not typically the world who is just gloriously ignorant. It's those of us in the church. I want you to think right now, if I were to ask you, what does God think about you at this very moment? Or let me rephrase it. How does God feel about you at this very second? What would it be? What's God's thoughts about you? How does God feel about you, your life, and your existence? And for the Christian, hear me. If it's anything and I mean anything less than love and delight and being overjoyed that you're his, then you're missing the significance of what's being said here in Romans. Then you're not believing the gospel. Then you haven't received this grace. This is why it's so important for us to understand these concepts. We're not, we're not, I'm not up here trying to be fancy. Justification, righteousness, propitiation. I could care less if tomorrow you know how to spell propitiation. I probably won't either. <laughs> As Paul tells us here, 
in the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, God's love and God's anger, his wrath, were completely satisfied. No compromise to his mercy. No compromise to his justice. Because Jesus lived the life that we couldn't. He died the death that we deserve. And through Jesus, all of the demands of God's law were perfectly upheld on our behalf. And what that means for us now is that every single last ounce of God's anger and every single ounce of God's disappointment was absorbed for us on the cross. So that every last ounce of God's joy and every last ounce of God's delight would be extended to us. Are you listening to me today? This is crazy news. Receive it or reject it, but don't be sleeping on this. Don't be sleeping on this. Sorry, I forgot what it's like to interact with real people. Forgive me. <laughs> for the one who trusts in Jesus for his or her acceptance, God's interaction with us is always marked by love, patience, gentleness, and delight. Can we grieve him when we sin? Yeah. We grieve God when we sin, just like any true relationship. But as we approach God, when we sin, as we approach God, we don't approach him with the fear of punishment. We don't have to cower in his presence. Because as 1 John tells us, the perfect love of God casts out all fear, and the fear has to do with punishment. And when we come to God and we approach God in all of our mess, in all of our brokenness, in all of our sin, for the Christian, what we can expect is grace. And because of Jesus, all the enmity has been removed. And now what is experienced between God and the Christian is intimacy. It's freedom. It's acceptance. And here's the crazy, crazy news. Anyone can get in on this. Anyone can get in on this. Who is this for? All who believe. Let me close with a story and then I'm done. In William Shakespeare's Measure for Measure, there's this strict judge named Angelo who condemns a man named Claudio for, to death for a, a crime that really doesn't deserve death. He got a woman pregnant. And so Claudio's sister Isabel comes and begins to plead with Angelo, just these different attempts to get him to show him her, her brother mercy. And she keeps coming back and she keeps getting rejected. And so she finally comes with her final appeal. And she says these words, alas, alas. All the souls on earth were doomed once upon a time, and yet God, who could have seized the opportunity to condemn us, instead, he found the remedy. And so she asks the judge, and I want us to consider this today. What would happen to you if he who is the highest judge of all were to judge you as you deserve now? What would happen if God, the Holy One, simply judged us in the way that we deserve? And so then she says, she says these words, oh, think on that, and mercy will begin to breathe within your lips. And here's, here's the kicker right here, like a man made new. 
she's, you know what she's saying is, if you actually truly believe this, you'd be changed forever. As I mentioned earlier, these truths, justification, righteousness, propitiation, the desire here is not to expand your theological vocabulary. The hope and the prayer today is that these truths would change our lives. These are the truths that make us new, that these truths would shape the way that we interact with God, that it would shape the way that we relate to others, that it would shape the way that we relate to ourselves. When we look in the mirror in the morning, we feel gripped by shame and guilt and self-hatred, and we're so ready to beat ourselves up. Let these truths sink into your heart. You are redeemed. You are justified. You have received the gift of propitiation through Jesus. And so the, 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 the exhortation today is very simple. Receive this gift of grace anew. Let it shape you. Let it mold you like men, women, and children made new. Amen? Right. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. And